This was an episode that Adam and I left feeling three years wiser. This week, we had the pleasure of chatting to David Shane. David is the founder of Australia's first unicorn comtech, the author of the book, The Dumbest Guy at the Table, and the co-founder of the Emergent VC fund, OIL. We dive deep into Dave's lucky breaks, how he identifies talent, living a fulfilling life, and OIF's mission. This isn't an episode you want to miss. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Satchel and Adam show. Now, it's not every day that you have someone that solved a company for over a billion dollars w- walk into your scrappy Darlinghurstshire house. And today, we're absolutely delighted to have David Sheen on our podcast. Super stoked to be talking to Dave today. So he's a bit of royalty of the Australian startup ecosystem. So Dave, probably the thing that came to fame for Dave is that he started Australia's first billion dollar tech company. It was a company called Comtech, which we'll get into later. And it was a networking business that he sold for $1.1 billion. And this was during the day when tech just wasn't a big industry in Australia. And after doing that, he started our innovation fund, which is one of the biggest VC funds in Australia as well. So he still has the knack of picking billion dollar businesses, um, entrepreneurs and all that. And to round out all that, he's also written a really, really brilliant book called The Dumbest Guy at the Table. So I spent the last couple of weeks reading this and it's really, really good insights into sort of the fundamental lessons of building enduring companies. So really excited to dig into this, Dave. Thanks for coming. Great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. And I should correct myself, David Shine, not David Sheen. Um, I got my one job wrong, but... <laughs> you know, as a sales guy, I always say I don't care what people... Call me as long as they buy from me, so don't worry. I've been called a lot worse than that. Lesson number one. <laughs> um, so, Dave, one of the core principles in your book is face reality as it is, not as it was, or you wish it to be. And I think that struck to me as something really powerful. And I was really curious, how did, how did you come across learning that lesson and how did it play out in your life? So, as I said in my book, I, I could write a book on lucky breaks and it would be a whole lot thicker than the dumbest guy at the table. And one, <laughs> of, one of my lucky breaks was I happened to be on a, a flight to the US. I was reading a Fortune magazine and in those days, Fortune used to have book summaries. and It was a six-page book summary of a book called Control Your Own Destiny or Someone Else Will. And it was about Jack Welsh, who was legendary CEO of General Electric. He literally turned that company on its ear and, uh, and he had six rules for success of which one of them was face reality as it is, not as it was or as you wish it to be. And actually, I think the second one that's really relevant as well is change before you have to. And, and I think it's really, even if you look at where we are in the industry today, um, the reality is, as an example, is that you know, capital may have been easy nine months ago, nine to twelve months ago. Today, it's it's a whole lot tougher for a for a startup to to raise capital, and any founder that doesn't face the reality as it is, uh, you know, not as they not as it was nine months ago, or as they wish it to be. I wish it still was like last year, or I wish I had raised more money last year. Is going to have problems, and so they have to change before they have to. They have to actually say, you know, I'm going to. Um, I'm going to be either willing to extend the last round at the last price, even though my revenues may have grown, or I'm going to have to cut costs and and reduce my headcount to do something to extend my runway. And I think, you know, I sat on the board of, of Fairfax many, many years ago. In fact, during the years where they had an opportunity to really revolutionise and change their, their business, um, they had what, what, what was referred to as the rivers of gold. It was the three most important decisions you make in your life. 
It was you know, where you live, where you work, and what and what car you drive. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know they had this this phenomenal business where people advertised in the Fin Review, the Sydney Morning Herald, you know, the Age, and the internet just came about. You know, at the end of um, you know, I was on the board between '99 and uh, 2002. Mm-hmm. You know, the internet really started happening very early on in say 1996. Fairfax made a little investment in that area. The dot-com crash happened, and I think people put up their hands yeah, in, in, in celebration, saying, well, that's all over. We'd, lucky we didn't spend a whole lot of money in that area. But it wasn't that the internet had gone away. Yeah, some of, the, some of the, the poorly managed companies or companies that really just changed their name from uh, yeah, um, a pet shop to our pet shop, those are the companies that disappeared. But the internet, you know, there were... Great companies that emerged, including in Australia, yeah, Seek, REA, and car sales that literally killed Fairfax because Fairfax didn't face reality as it as it was, and they didn't change before they had to, and uh, and it cost them their business. Mm, yeah, that's a really important lesson, and I think that massively shines through in your book. And something I found really interesting in the book, especially at the beginning. You came across as such a determined and bold risk taker from quite an early age. You'd immigrated from South Africa. You had a young kid, I believe. Yep. You had a wife. You took this really big risk to start Comtech. And so sort of looking back earlier in your life, were there any sort of key influences that gave you the – that sort of led to you becoming that risk-taking personality or just someone that takes action with such conviction? So I think my dad was a big influence on on – my dad was in business, he was in the clothing industry and, and you know, once again going back to the book you would have seen the forward of the book was written by Ian Chappell and uh, my dad met Ian in 1966 when he, my, my, my dad gave the Australian touring cricket team, uh, fitted them out with suits and uh, so I was, was encouraged by my dad and his business, uh, his, his business to think about one day doing that myself and my dad always used to say, Rather earn fifty cents for yourself than a dollar from somebody else. And uh, however, I, I I don't think I was a massive risk taker. I think there's lots lots of entrepreneurs have taken much much bolder and bigger risks than myself because yeah I was lucky enough to have a job. My first job in Australia, I was uh, earning two thousand dollars a month. I uh, I had uh, I hated going to work. You know, I worked at Price Waterhouse. Loved my job at Price Waterhouse. Came to Australia, hated going to work every day. You know, it almost felt like someone was pushing me out the door to go to work, and I had no say in what I did. It was almost like, you know, Dave, you can leave your brain at the front door and pick it up on the way home. So, you know, the opportunity cost for me was two thousand dollars, and I decided I was going to take if I ever wanted to start a business. Uh, at the opportunity cost was that low that it really, uh, it, it really was the right time to start, and and. In spite of having a, a, a wife and a young kid, I was lucky enough to be living with my in-laws. So I knew I always had a roof over my head. My wife and my son had, would, would have food on the table and, and I thought, now's the time to have a, to have a go. Yeah, that's a, that's a brilliant anecdote. I think it's also a reminder for people when you're young that yeah. you, know, you had a kid and a child and I think this is something we're going to be talking about over the coming weeks. But you know, people who are young in Australia, they don't really have 
you know, those things holding them back to take risks. And so, you know, there, there's no reason not to take a massive Yeah, risk. for context, we're speaking at the Sunrise Festival, the Blackbirds Festival, and one of the questions that we're going to be asking the person we're interviewing is about, is it actually more risky not to start a startup when you're young? And I think when you frame it in terms of, if you just look at the opportunity costs, it's like your salary is a few thousand bucks a month, you yep. also have a roof over the top of your head. It doesn't seem as scary as you actually think it is. I, I think, as I say... <coughs> It's better to earn, uh, yeah, my dad says better to earn 50 cents for yourself than a dollar from someone else. However, yeah, I think you also have to be, you also have to face reality as it is, not as it was as you wish it to be. And I think I always say that if any of my boys wanted to have a crack, I would absolutely encourage them and back them to the hilt. But I would say that if after a reasonable period of time, you're not earning at least as much as you would in a job, or and two, you're not building an asset that you can sell one day, don't, you know, don't waste your time. So I think I would advise any young person, if you, you know, don't die wondering. If, you, if, you, if you've got an idea, have a go. But if, if you, you know, sometimes you just got to say this, you know, I've given it my best, it's not working, maybe it is time to go get a job or try something different. I feel like we're getting a real-life business education live yeah. on this podcast. Um, <laughs> I'd love to just put kind of a placeholder there because we're going to go into Comtech as a second. But... In, in a second, but we'd love to kind of get to know you outside of your business career. Um, apart from, you know, all, all these things that we've mentioned before and, you know, this big billion dollar company you started, who are you um, at your core? So I think I'm, a, at my core, I'm, a, I'm proud that I'm still married to my same wife that I started my company. You know, we've been married 38 years. So I'm, a, wow. I'm a husband, I'm a dad, I'm a grandfather today. I've, I've got mates who I can... I'm proud to say I've got mates who, yeah, who I'm, one of my mates is two days older. I was at his first birthday party. We're still best mates to this day. And uh, so I think I'm a loyal person. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I think, uh, I've, I think I've got a fantastic balance in my life today. I think uh, my work-life balance is fantastic. Just sitting, talking to you guys, you know, working in an industry where, yeah, you're surrounded with, you know, guys in their 20s, uh, 30s, et cetera, Helps keep me young, yeah. and uh, and yeah, I love what I do. I absolutely love going to work every day because you know, we work in an unbelievable, exciting time in Australia. I think um, yeah, I think it was Malcolm Turnbull and those books on your shelf, and I'm lucky to sit on two boards with two of our portfolio companies. I think when he became prime minister, I'll never forget. He said, "There's never been a better time to be Australian," and I absolutely, absolutely support that view. And I think. Yeah, you know, six years since you know later, probably seven years later since he made that speech. I think it, there's a lot of vindication behind what's happened you know, over the last seven years in Australia. Yeah, and I think before we hit record, we were saying how fit you look for your age. Like, I think you're the fittest grandfather I've ever seen. Um, you inspire me to go to the gym after this. And <laughs> yeah, and would love to dive into Comtech now. And I think that the sort of business it was, the networking company backing back in the 90s and the 80s. That's a very foreign world for us. Yep. So would you be able to sort of paint a bit of a picture of the context of the technology landscape at the time and how you got that initial idea for Comtech? So, you know, as we said before we kicked off the podcast, I was, I was uh, like you guys, um, working in an accounting, accounting firm. I worked for Pricewaterhouse. It was uh, pre-PWC and uh, was lucky enough you know, in, in my day, which I'm going back to the, the early 80s, um, Can't relate. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the early eighties, PCs weren't pervasive. You know, they weren't pervasive.
face it. I mean, you, you, you may have the accountant who would do some budgeting on, on a spreadsheet or yeah, an, an EA who was doing word processing on a computer, but they weren't on every desktop and in every household. And uh, I started putting small business on computer, and then more and more people started saying it would be great if I could get access to a terminal or whatever. And I happened to notice that that networking of networking PCs was becoming yeah, a pretty big area. It was called local area networking. So if you were in an office environment, there were six people working in an office, you would, you would basically connect those PCs. And as I say, for young guys like you, sounds like crazy. <laughs> like this guy sounds like he's from a different planet. <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, so I, I saw the gap in the market. There was, in Australia, there was already an existing... Uh, distributor for a, a company that was the hottest company in the world at the time it was a company called Novell and uh, and uh, I was lucky enough that when Novell opened an office they wanted to appoint a second distributor and uh, yeah I uh, there were 27 companies that applied for that and then I guess yeah being a, a founder you have to hustle and you have to do whatever it takes and we yeah, I convinced, there was a guy, Peter Stanford, he was the country manager for Novell, and he appointed me as, as the second distributor in Australia. And uh, once again, going back to those lucky breaks, I was really, really lucky because the incumbent, yeah, I was, that was so bad, I didn't have to be good. And, uh, you know, when Novell appointed me, they said, if you're as big as Datamatic, you're a massive public company at the time, if you're as big as Datamatic, uh, within 18 months, there'll be no change to our distribution policy. Within three months, I was twice their size, and uh, <coughs> and uh, Novell rewarded me by appointing two more distributors. Um, literally three months later, so literally, you know, every business has challenges. Yeah, my my challenge was we became one of four distributors selling the absolute identical product in the Australian marketplace, and we still managed to retain seventy percent market share because we just delivered absolutely, unbelievably uh, good customer service. We, we're the best technical team in the country. And, uh, you know, I really realized early on, if you invest in your people, they'll, they'll deliver exceptional service to your customers. And we went from, you know, we never, ever lost that 70% market share. And I always say I was lucky enough to have Datamatic as our competitor. The next two distributors, Marysell and Power, Powerland, had Comtech as the distributor, could just, just could never cut it because we... We just fought tooth and nail to keep our customers, and it was just yeah, customer service, customer service, and yeah, what we used to call legendary customer service, and uh, and that's how we retained our market share. Yeah, and, and you speak about how kind of you went really after this sales led model, and you're you're really passionate about this sales led model. I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into you know your sales playbook and what made you do so well to get that seventy percent market share. So I, I, I really believe yeah, in, in everything, what you, what you say is what you do. And when we make commitments to customers, we never let them down. And I, I really believe that's how we earn the, the, the confidence of our customers, is that you know, we never made promises that we couldn't deliver on. When the shit hit the fan, which it always does, you know, I've worked, you know, having worked with uh, big companies like yeah, Novell or Microsoft or Cisco and small companies like yeah, later on in my career, Macromatics and Holly, etc. Yeah, there's always challenges, there's always technical problems. And and uh, yeah, we always made it our absolute yeah, was 
when the shit hit the fan, there was no finger pointing. It was not, it's your problem, it's our problem, or Telstra didn't deliver a line on time. It's like, what do we need to do to fix the problem? And we always fix that problem. That I, I just know that, yeah, um, yeah, I always I saw something on 60 Minutes and, and they, they spoke about Las Vegas. And, and they said, this place hasn't been built on winners. This place has been built on losers. And when I think about Comtech, I always think that our, our business was built on problems and our ability to solve those problems as and when they occurred. And the only way you can do that is by having a highly energised team of people who not only have the ability but also have the attitude to fix those problems as and when they occurred. Yeah, I think that's like some really refreshing lessons to hear because we read a lot of books about business and investing and often you get really technical lessons about how to do the sort of best marketing plan or how to invest capital really efficiently. But you're given a lot of like fundamental human sort of lessons, which for me, it came down to integrity. Like you said, like really saying what you're going to do yep. and delivering to people and treating people really well. And and it's it's not just saying it, it's doing it. You know, everybody... Everybody, you know, I've never heard any company on their, on their website that says, you know, we couldn't give a damn about our customers or, you know, our staff or our number four asset. Everybody says, you know, we're absolutely committed to delivering fantastic service. Not every company does it. Not even, you know. Yeah, I think every company loves to preach it. And I think another thing that made you really successful is that you're a great identifier of talent. And you were very upfront in the start of the book that you weren't naturally a technologist, yep. that you weren't the best person at understanding sort of networks and systems, but you were, you made great hires. And I think some of the early hires you made, you said they're some of the smartest people you've ever made and, and you're really sort of consistent of bringing on good people. So do you have any lessons for hiring really good people and how to think about talent? You know, my book's called The Dumbest Guy at the Table because, you know, just sitting at this table, I can guarantee you I'm the dumbest guy <laughs> nah. at the table. But I do have, I think my skill was, I, I somehow I had a really good gut um, for, you know, for people. And, and, you know, that's what I do for a living today in venture capital. You know, when, when you're investing early stage, there's no numbers that you can't go, you know, there's not a proven track record in terms of when you can see, you know, what, what's the, you know, What's the revenue? What's the profitability? What's the you know, what what we as accountants may want to traditionally look at? You're actually going and saying, do I believe that this founder is going to be able to execute on the business plan that they presented? You know, that's a huge, and a lot of that is going on the gut feel. So I I uh, I just feel it was something that I'm lucky enough that I think has has served me well over my career, and uh, and I think it's because I always looked at I always say we we hire for attitude, train for skills. And uh, yeah, some of the best, you know, some of the most amazing people I've ever hired. I never saw their CVs. You know, there was a young guy hired. He worked for Olivetti. He was 18 years old, and Olivetti was an Italian company. They did uh, in in my day, they did computers and printers. That is, I learned a really good lesson because they decided they were going to get out of the PC industry and just keep their computer, their their, their printer division and fired everybody in the computer division. So instead of saying we've got this really good guy in the computer division, this really yeah, uh, you know, incompetent person in the printer division will still keep the incompetent guy and get, get rid of. So a guy that I worked with said there's this amazing young guy, Scott Petty, really good guy. I met him, gave him a job, 18 years old. He probably did about six different jobs in our company from you know, tech support to pre-sales to running our marketing team, to becoming our, uh, our, our 
um, Chief Technology Officer. Today he runs Vodafone. He's the CTO of Vodafone in the UK. And, uh, yeah, I'm really proud of that. Yeah, we had a lot of amazing guys. There was a guy, Dave Colvin. He worked for our competitor, Datamatic. He, he worked in the warehouse. Somebody said to me, this guy's awesome, but they won't give Dave a job in, in tech support because he wears an earring. Now, I could never understand what that <laughs> yeah. You'll never get a job at Datamatic, but come see me. So. So, but, but Dave, uh, I met Dave, and he had long hair, an earring, and you know, he was literally giving telephone support. So I don't know why anyone would worry what. And actually, when you heard Dave speak, Dave was soft-spoken voice like if you had to say what do you think Dave looks like you'd expect to this computer nerd with <laughs> whatever but but yeah I gave Dave a job and uh, and I, I uh, one of the proudest things that happened to me in my career Dave joined us was one of the best tech guys that I've ever ever worked with in my in my in my career and one day Dave came to see me and he was literally white and I said what's wrong Dave he said uh They've got a problem at the at the Mars Bar factory in Albury, Wodonga. And uh, Dave came from Forbes. He was the youngest in a family of five. I think he was the highest, highest earning member of his family. And I said, Dave, come on, mate. You've never been scared of a tech problem before. He said, no, no, I'm not worried about that. I've never been on a plane before. <laughs> and, uh, and about 18 months later, Dave came into my office and said, Dave, I'm going to ruin your day. I said, what's up, Dave? He said, I'm leaving. And I went white because I, I, I just felt the blood drain from my... I said, what do you mean? What are you doing? He said, I've been offered a job at Merrill Lynch in the UK. And in my day, most of the guys that we lost were, if you were under 27, you could get a two-year working visa in the UK. And Dave said, I'm going to work for Merrill Lynch in the UK. I said, mate, you've actually made my day. I said, I'm so proud that for someone who hadn't been on an aeroplane before, you, you're now able to go and work in the UK. <laughs> I said, but make sure... I said, you, you know, I said, you know, if the English were so clever, they would have kept the convicts in the UK and they would have come here. So I said, you're going to come back. <laughs> and when you do, make sure you do not even go past my office. My office was actually where the, where the wise tech offices are today in Alexandria. I said, don't even go, don't even go home. You come straight back and, uh, and uh, make sure you tell me that you, you want your job back because you, your job's open and sure enough, about 18 months later, Dave came back and he outlasted me. I think he left, he left uh, the company maybe five or six years ago. But, yeah, I mean, you know, now I don't know if Dave... Dave definitely wouldn't have had a, a, a uni degree. Scott Petty never had a uni degree. But in terms of attitude and ability, I wouldn't have swapped either of them for someone with a PhD networking. Mm. Mm. Seems like a lot of undervalued talent that you're able to recognize. It's yeah, impressive. I just want to reflect on that for a second because we, we've been talking a lot about undervalued talent and how to spot people. And it, it seems like nowadays people hire so much based on signals, right? Signals that, you know, go beyond that face-to-face -face conversation, which, you know, you said you trust your gut with. But if you see the people that get hired now, look at their LinkedIn profiles, you get imposter syndrome because these people have been to places like McKinsey and won uni medals and done all these sorts of things. So I think it's really amazing that someone like you is still looking for that kind of, that gut feel with talent. Well, I, I mean, I used to love it because I used to see ads like IBM would be, you know, have these job ads and saying, you know, we're looking for these skills, these skills, and these skills, and it's a tertiary qualification requirement. So, well, thank God they can't hire half our tech guys because... <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I think in the tech industry, I mean, today, I mean, even, you know, some software developers, I mean, some of the best software developers I've ever worked with are self-taught. Mm. And that's, uh, you, you know, my son, my youngest son's a software developer, 
and I encouraged him to get a job while he was at uni and he worked for a really good, and still does work for a really good uh, tech guy. He said, I don't know why I got a degree, Dad. I've learned more on the job from Dave Colvin, than that, from, from Dave Sturk than what I would have learned, uh, what I learned in my, you know, my four years at uni. Yeah, and by the way, I would never ever discourage anyone from getting a degree. By the way, but it's but it's not the be all and end all. It doesn't yeah. mean because yeah. you've you've got a degree that yeah. You know, what's more important or as important is what's your attitude. Yeah, you know, once again, yeah, you know, are you a team player? Yeah, you know, when the shit hits the fan, you know, you're gonna look at your watch and say, "It's five o'clock. I go to gym at five. I can't." Yeah, you know, it's it's it's. Will you give 120 percent when 120 percent is required? 100 percent. No, 120%. (laughs) (laughs) And Dave, I think we're at the point of the story now where you can't just start to um, think about leaving Comtech. And obviously it got acquired for over a billion dollars and that must have massively changed your life and the trajectory of your family and everything you thought your life could be in Australia. Yep. But in your book, you touch on how after that moment you didn't quite feel fulfilled. I'd love to kind of dive into that. Yep. So first of all, the company got sold for a billion dollars. I wasn't the, the only shareholder. We had other investors in the company, and uh, but yeah, for me it was it was yeah. I I I ended up with more money than I ever dreamt that I would ever have in my in my life. And yeah, financial security. Anyone who says financial security is not important is is yeah. You nobody wants to struggle. You know you. But there's there comes a point in time where you say how much how much is enough. And everybody has a different quality of life in terms of what what's going to make them happy, or what what's important for them in terms of of the way they want to what the way they want to live. And uh, I I actually, funny enough, I uh, I didn't actually have an intention of leaving. It was actually quite weird what happened. We had these crappy offices in George Street. It was uh, just above Wynyard Station. And I used to sit by the front door. I had my office, and I loved seeing everybody coming into the office. And uh, and I, you know, Adam, how's it going? What's happening on the on the Westpac deal? And I knew exactly what was going on. knew <laughs> knew everything. And uh, and uh, my wife actually came to my office one day, and uh, she had never been, never ever came to the office in the fourteen years I ran the company. She was sitting at my at my desk with a big envelope, and I opened this envelope. There must be bloody divorce papers, <laughs> <laughs> and it was uh, Happy birthday. We're going to Bali. I said, ah, did you come and check? Um, did you want to come and check with Jenny, who was my PA at the time, when my diaries were? She said, no, no, we're going right now. And I said, the two women I'm supposed to trust most in my life have been bloody bullshitting me <laughs> for that. And uh, so my wife and my PA basically worked out. So I went to Bali. It was in, I still remember, it was August the 23rd. It was for my 40th. Uh, and uh, it was the Olympics in Australia that year. So we went before, before the Olympics and before my birthday. And just absolutely by chance, during that week, we moved offices to these really, really cool offices that would be almost like if you guys saw them, they, were even, they would even be cool today. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was in the old Bushels Tea Building, and they had the old, yeah, we used, to, we used the old tea hoppers as meeting rooms, and uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Mr. Wong, the restaurant, Mr. Yeah. Wong, but yeah. you know, those amazing wooden beams in that really awesome building. So we went from these crappy offices to these fantastic state-of-the-art offices. But I was, I was sitting, I used to call it like a main street. It was myself, the CFO, we had a general manager, my PA, and I, I just felt that I'd lost connection. I felt my value add was, was being with, with people. That's what I felt I was good at, and that's really where I felt I could make a difference. 
and I actually hated it. I just felt I'd lost, I'd lost my, as, a, as the leader or the CEO, I felt I'd lost my competitive advantage in the company. And, uh, and uh, never once when I was in Bali did I say to my wife, you know, I'm going to leave. It was when I came back that I just decided I just had lost, had lost that, that, that hunger and decided I was going to move on, and which I did. And probably the biggest mistake I made, and I think a lot of sports people make the same mistake, is I just left. And uh, I didn't plan for my life after Comtech. I didn't have a plan. And I think that's what happens to some sports people. I mean, you see a lot of you know, the swimmers or athletes who, who just quit and then have nothing to, to go to or to do. And, and it's actually debilitating. You know, as I say, you know, I could have had whatever car I wanted to have. I could have gone anywhere from a, on a holiday that I, that I wanted to go on. But I didn't have a purpose. I just felt it was really debilitating having nothing to do, not being able to add value. You know, when you're running and when you're the founder of a company, you know, your phone's ringing, you got emails coming in, all of a sudden it literally goes from 100 to zero. And uh, it, it, was, it was, I found it pretty tough to, to deal with. And uh, I... Uh, Told you I sat on the board of, of Fairfax, which I hated from the minute I got on the board <laughs> till the day I got off, but I'd made a commitment to sit on that board for three years. And, uh, and, and the reason I hated it, you know, big boards work for some people, it just didn't work for me, and is that I felt that if I got hit by a bus, the share price of Fairfax wouldn't go up by one cent and it wouldn't go down by one cent because I made absolutely no difference. But about a year after I left uh, Comtech, there was a founder of a company which, believe it or not, was, Holly, what will the weather be like in Melbourne tomorrow? Holly, what, <laughs> what, what, what time is it in uh, Singapore? Okay, it was, you know, it, the founder sent me the business plan a few years ago, and if I gave you the business plan, you guys would have said, this must be for Siri or for Alexa. So it was a speech recognition company. Uh, there was a guy, his name was Lance Burks. He had, a, he had a co-founder. The two guys were killing each other. He asked me to come and help him. And uh, which I did, and I was a small investor in that company. Like I always felt, I fluked it once in my life. Uh, you know, my job was to keep what I'd made, not to think, geez, that was easy, I'll do it all over again. So I put in maybe $25,000 or fifty. You know, angel investing, as, as you guys would know, and uh, yeah, enough to have an interest, but not, not that I could change my, my, my life in, uh, uh, in, in, a, in any way, in, in either direction. And... Uh, I fired the one co-founder, and six months later, Lance looked at me and said, Dave, I can't thank you enough for helping me. And I looked at him and I said, Lance, I can't thank you enough for helping me, which he really did, because that I really realized that I could sit, I didn't have to be the CEO to actually make a difference and add some value. And that's really defined my career from you know, 2001 to, to where I am today. That's what I still, you know, that's what I did until I started OIF together with my co-founder, Jeff Levy, in 2016, uh, was just dabbling with a number of startups, and I really, you know, I, I loved, I love being able to have a cup of coffee with somebody, and uh, someone saying to me, "Geez, Dave, I never thought about that." And I thought, "Wow, I've added some value today. I made a difference." And I think everybody wants to, everybody wants to make a difference and add some value, in, you know, no matter who you are. And that's written in your LinkedIn bio, right? It's like, "Am my happiest when I'm adding value to other people?" <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the truth. That's what I that's what I, I love doing, and uh, yeah, awesome. And yeah, OIF has come a really long way now. You've got hundreds of millions of dollars of assets under management. You've got a pretty big team invested in some great companies. 
When you started it in 2016, what was the initial thesis of OIF? What, what did you want it to stand for? So let me, let me say what actually happened was, if I have a regret in my career, I saw the internet really, really early on. Yeah, if you, the book, the, the book you've got, there's one photo and it's me with Mark Andreessen. Oh, okay, wow. Mark Andreessen, as you guys know, was the was the guy who uh, you know, was the founder of Netscape, invented the browser, and uh, you know, I had a, we used to have a conference in nineteen. Uh, wow. There's Mark. There's, there's <laughs> Mark and me, and and you'll notice that the guy standing next to Mark is a fat guy, and that's me. So <laughs> we'll come on to that later because you said I'm, a, I'm I look pretty fit uh, how, today. How old are you in that photo? I would have in 1996. I was 36. Wow, Ooh, good for your age there. Mark, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so um so yeah, that was he had no passport before that trip. So I saw the internet really really early on. I, I remember saying to my wife, "Our kids will go to Harvard, living in Dover Heights." And uh, when I sold the company in 2000, I was burnt to a cinder. And I left in 2001, literally burnt to a cinder. Saw the internet, what, what impact it had on, you know, on the way we live, the way we work, the way we play, everything. And, uh, but I, I did nothing with it. And uh, in 2016, I said to my business partner, Jeff Levy, and as I said, we had been dabbling with startups since 2000 one or 2002 with Holly, I said to Jeff, you can see and feel what's happening with innovation in Australia. I said, I don't want to make the same mistake that I made with the internet and say in 10 years time, say, I told you when you see and we're going to be part of it. And at that time, um, Malcolm Turnbull's government had made the, the changes to uh, you know, the tax policies to, to make it really um, Tax effective for for high net wealth to invest in in, in startups or an early stage venture capital company funds and uh, and we set up our fund in 2016. So the 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 thesis then and I hope that it never changes is that we really think our fund is what we call is, is built on 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 three Fs. That uh, first first is the founder. We're absolutely 120 percent committed to our founders. We. We we really see our founders as our customers, and you know we see money as a commodity. You know, there's you know Blackbird's just raised a billion dollars, and SquarePeg's got eight hundred, you know, Airtree seven hundred million dollars. There's 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 so much money in the ecosystem today. Your know, money is is the commodity. So you know, for for us to differentiate ourselves is what value can we add to a founder other than just provide a check? And we really want to do whatever whatever we can to help a founder achieve their objectives. The second thing is we're a fund. The second F is we're a fund, and uh, and we we have been entrusted by investors to to yeah, as stewards of their capital to to invest their capital wisely and deliver returns. We only have high net wealth as as investors in our funds. We have no institutional money. We've literally looked every investor in the eye and said we would rather make five times on an investment with an unbelievably happy founder. And so we made seven times, and boy, did we screw the founder. And no one said on that basis, I'm out. And, uh, and the third F is we're a fund without a D. We want to work with people that we want to work with. And, uh, and I think that's really the exciting part. I always say we love our founders, and our founders love us. That I think if, if, if anyone was pitching to us and we really wanted to invest in their business, We'd say there's 30 companies on our website. Go and talk to any of the founders, and that's you know we see our founders as our our customers, 
as well as our as, as our investors, somehow we've got to keep both happy. Yeah, and it seems like you've been really intentional in the way you've built out OIF. I'd love to talk to you about, you know, apart from this, you know, this gut feel that you have in early stage, what are some other things and like industries that OIF is really interested in? So so we don't have a thematic in terms of industries that we, we go after. Our, our thematic is founders, and we believe, hopefully, that our founders will take us into to the, you know, the fast-growing industry. So, for example, yeah, we, see, yeah, we see climate change as a, as a massive opportunity. We don't have any investments in our, in our portfolio yet in that area, but I would be surprised within, you know, within Fund 3 if we don't have an investment, so in, in, an investment in that area. But we don't specifically say we're going to, you know, we're going to do all our research and find the, the, the top five or ten companies that potentially could, yeah, could fit into our fund. We, we rather meet a founder and say, is this someone that we want to work with? And now tell us what you do. And then we look at the opportunity. Yeah, so when I, yeah, obviously as a fund today, yeah, in the old days I'd meet someone so yes, Sasha, I really like I, I really like you. Here's fifty grand, and that was my due diligence. Okay, <laughs> today, as I say, when people have entrusted us with their capital, if we said, you know, Dave had a cup of coffee, like the guy, and we just put five million dollars into the <laughs> business. So today, obviously, we'd have to do a lot more due diligence in terms of of the companies that we invest in. But as I say, we absolutely are founder led, and we yeah, so we we don't have anything in crypto yet. But we've had a number of companies pitch to us, and uh, and uh, one actually, um, yeah, it's probably two investments, a few investments that we really wanted to make that that actually slipped through the cracks. Of which one was is an air tree investment, the crypto tax guys, yeah. and one is the Blackbird investment, which is um, Dovetail. Yeah, and the, those those two have one thing in common. I cook dinner for both of them, so I'm, I'm not ever cooking dinner for any <laughs> any company we ever want to invest in until they've taken our cash. So, what, was the meal was the meal good, or well, was you probably well, tried to poison them? Well, no, that I, I I remember with the crypto tax guys, I I, I cooked burgers and that both one of the second ones so <laughs> couldn't have been that bad. <laughs> oh, maybe you didn't cook them enough. They just wanted more, and they came home and were still hungry. Oh, that's um, yeah, that's brilliant. And I would love to hear. So you say that obviously you're founder first, and then after that, everything is sort of considered as due diligence. Yep. Due diligence, and we've touched a bit on talent and how to identify people. But just like going really deep into the founders, what are some of the qualities that you'll look for? Um, obviously, there might be persistence, sort of unique and novel insights. Are there anything that really jumps out to you if we're having a conversation and I was a founder? So. <laughs> I think one of the most critical things for any founder is do they have the ability to energise people? You know, do they have the ability? Because a founder in those really early days I have to go, are going to have to convince, how am I going to get a CTO to come in? Why would you want to leave your job? For, you know, you've got a, a secure job in a, you know, at, 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 a, at a reputable company. You're going to come join the startup where you know, we've got no customers, we've got no office, we've got no whatever. Come and join me. Yeah, you've got to go and convince those first few customers to 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 have a go to give you. Yeah, you know, I always say every time I've succeeded in my life is you know, because someone's put their balls on the line and said the the easy decision is to go with Micros, the right decision is to go with Macromatics. I know that if I if I go with Micros, I'll keep my job even if it even if it doesn't work. 
if if I go with macromatics or if I go with Holly, which happened with Telstra and macromatics was, you know, we had software for the fast food industry. You know, KFC literally committed the entire business to us. And and the CTO pretty much said, I'm going to give these guys a go because I think it's the right the right decision for for KFC. And uh, so you need a founder who's going to literally be able to energize people. You need a founder who who's going to you know you, you, who's going to have a lot of energy. Like if you think of just the last few years of being what it's taken to be a founder, you know, you know going through a pandemic, you know, then going through probably the toughest yeah you know, toughest time I've ever ever seen for you know, attracting retaining talent in you know, in my career. It's 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 been unbelievably hard, no matter what. You know, where you fit in the ecosystem. And uh, you know, then you know, going from cash being easy to now being you know, struggling to raise capital. I think we, this generation of founders is going to be probably the best you know, just in terms of, of you, know, you can't learn at Harvard Business School what founders have had to, ch- the challenge that founders have been faced with over the, um, over the last couple of years. So you've got to have a lot of energy to be able to deal with all those problems. You also want someone who you believe is going to have the edge to make those tough yes and no decisions. Am I going to be willing to get rid of my best salesperson because they don't share the values of the company? Am I going to be willing to say, I, I don't, you know, you think of Steve Jobs, came back to Apple, they had 100 products, so I'm getting rid of 96 and ended up, ended up with four. You know, are you going to have a leader who's going to say, I'm going to have the edge to make those tough decisions? Should I, should I open, are we ready to open an office in the U.S.? Yeah, am I am I willing to get rid of a product that may be generating revenue, but it's take it's a distraction to you know, to our core business? And and finally, does that founder every every founder delivers you a business plan? Do you really sincerely believe that this founder is going to have the ability to execute on what they've what they've told you? Yeah. So I think it's all four. It's do they have the energy? Do they have the ability to energize? the edge to make those tough yes and no decisions and are they going to execute on their business plan? That's a brilliant framework. And what I really liked about what you just said is that, you know, all of our audience listening would have heard so much about the macroeconomic environment. And it's always a very negative outlook. But you're right in saying that the founders that get through this are going to be, you know, have so much more resilience and probably have a much better shot at building a generational company getting through this tough time. Definitely, because the guys that survive... Are and you know the guys that survive are going to come out stronger from so many different perspectives. You know the guys that you know don't manage their businesses you know according to what you know they don't face reality as we said at the outset. You know aren't going to be around and you'll you'll have less competition in the in the future. Yeah, and um, kind of kind of the last question around OIF is like, what what do you see OIF becoming in the next ten years, and what what's a legacy you want to leave with the fund? The legacy I want to leave is what is what we have today. Is that is that our founders love us and our investors say the best thing we did was we we entrusted our capital to you know, wow. to to OIF. Yeah, we as you guys would have seen, we just recently raised 140 million dollars. We raised 100 million dollars literally within 24 hours. So we invest in a company wow. called Instacluster. Yeah, um, we put in three and a half million dollars and returned 70 million dollars in a 37 million dollar fund so literally just on that one investment we returned uh if you put a hundred dollars in our fund you got back 200 just on that one investment and we went out to our investors and said um just want to let you know you're going to get two times your 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 investment in our in our in your in our fund 
And by the way, we're also having a fund three. If you're keen to invest, please register your interest here. And yeah, I'm lucky enough to work with some amazing young guys. I work with uh, you know, Lauren Schwartz and Jerry Stessler, two of, two of our partners. And, uh, and they said, I can't believe we've raised the money that quickly. I said, guys, it's not rocket science. As long as our founders love us and we keep delivering amazing returns for our investors, there'll be a fund 26. The minute we forget and lose sight of that, there may not be another fund. We're only as good as our last fund. Wow, that's amazing. That must feel like a great feeling, being able to tell them um, you've just got two times your money and then all of a sudden getting uh, 100 mil in 24 hours. I was going to say, David, I, I think we'd love an invite to your next barbecue because it seems like you, <laughs> seems like you have a lot of rich friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd, I'd love to ask a slightly different question as we're getting towards the end. And something I noticed from the book was that you had the same wife for that your whole career, you're still with her, and you've had three boys, and it seems like you've actually had a really good family life amidst all the pressures of business and investing. And I'd love, how did you manage that, balancing those two important things, family and career, together? So, I, I am, um, one of my best mates uh, in South Africa is a guy by the name of Robbie Brosen, and I don't know if, you, if you've ever eaten at Nando's. Yeah. But Robbie is the founder of Nando's, and... Uh, I knew Robbie's family and uh, you know, from when I was a really young guy, I met Robbie when I went to high school. I was about 13 or 14. And what, I, what I'm honestly so proud of is that when I got married, I said to my wife, I want a family like the Brosens. I never said I wanted to be rich. I want a big house. I want to fancy this. It was, I want, I want a family like the Brosens. That was, that was absolutely, if you said to me, what was David Shane's goal? It was to have a family like the Brosens because I knew that family in good times, in tough times. They had challenges as all families do, whether financial or health or whatever. You would never have known when things were good or things were bad. They were just consistently unbelievable people. Then. Yeah, they, and, uh, and that, was, that was my objective. And uh, everything else has been a bonus. And uh, you know, I was lucky enough that my wife... Um, my wife was a stay-at-home mum, and I can tell you that was not a cop-out. I mean, my boys were pretty good boys, and on Monday, yeah, when I went to work, I said, thank God the weekend's done, because it's, it's, it's not, a, not an easy job taking care of, of, of kids, even, even good kids, and my kids are good kids. And uh, sometimes when people put you on the spot and ask you a question, you actually, you actually think about... Think about things that you may not have thought of. And there was a, a young guy that I worked with at, at um, Macromatics, one of the best guys I've ever worked with, a guy, Ricky Freelander, who then actually went on to become the CTO of another company which I invest in called Range Me. It was a great exit for the founder, female founder, Nikki Jackson. And uh, Ricky said, Dave, I want to ask you a question. He said, how have you managed to raise your boys that they're all hardworking, they've all got good manners, they... The, you know, you seem to have a pretty good, and I said, Rick, because I've, I've lived my life the way I want it, not the way people expect me to live my life. So if I want to drive a Subaru, I'm going to drive a Subaru. I'm not, I, I, I don't care if people say we would have expected Dave to be driving a, a Maserati or whatever. You know, I, I turned 62 years ago, and uh, we went to Nelson Bay, the whole family went to Nelson Bay. And uh, somebody said, oh, shame, did you only go to Nelson Bay because of COVID? I said, no, no, I went to Nelson Bay because that's where I wanted to go. And, uh, and, and it's true, whether it was COVID or not COVID, you know, travelling with 
two two grandkids was unbelievably easy. Like I can't believe why someone would want to get on a plane and fly to Lake Coma and everyone, you know, the kids haven't slept for twenty four hours and uh, and it's it's just not fun. We had a fantastic time, and if I you know, if I had my way again, I'd be going there for my sixty fifth and the seventieth as well. So <laughs> so yeah, I think I think just my advice to anyone would be if you do have success yourself, don't don't do things that you know. If I if I loved yeah, you know, as I said, I've got a mate who's two days older than me. He loves cars. He's you know he, he's raced motorbikes, go karts. I reckon if I told him I'm driving a, a Lamborghini, he'd think I'm the biggest idiot he's ever because he knows that I had absolutely no interest in cars. <laughs> and yeah. all, all of a sudden, yeah, why am I driving it? Because I want to tell people, you know, I've done really, really well. And, uh, you know, I like my car. I've got a Subaru because I ride a bicycle and, <laughs> and my bicycle fits in. I don't have to take the front wheel off. That's, <laughs> that's awesome. And, and I think maybe if you'd gotten your, um, your Nando's friend to provide the burgers, you might have got that deal across <laughs> the line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's some great lessons. I think it's probably one of the most important things that amidst all the success and fame and people that admire you still stay the same person. Um, it's incredibly important. I, I honestly, and I did write that in my book. I mean, funny enough, both uh, you know, Robbie, my friend from Nando's, uh, as well as Bob Dwyer, who was the coach of the Wallabies, yeah, both of them in their own way said, yeah, that you're still the same person that you were when you started the company. And, and, and to me, the biggest insult I could possibly ever get is if, if I heard anyone said, yeah, he used to be a nice guy, but forgotten where he's come from or whatever. And uh, yeah, I think that's... Uh, and I think my wife has had a huge, huge part of making sure that our family stayed grounded. And I really believe my wealth, I really do. My middle son got married recently in June. And I honestly said... That my wealth is my boys love each other. They'll do anything for each other, even though there's quite a big difference. I've got a 36-year-old, a 33-year-old, and a 26-year-old, and their best mates will do anything for each other. And you know that's worth that's worth more than anything. Wow, gonna shed a tear there. That's great. That's awesome. And um, Dave, one of the ways we like to round out our podcast is doing a quick fire round, which is sort of taking it back to the personal at the end, where we're going to ask you a bunch of questions about things, some of your favourite books people, all that sort of stuff. And you've got around 30 seconds to answer each one. Okay. You ready for that one? Fire away. Cool. What's one of your favourite books and why? I um, There's a few, but one that I read recently that I absolutely love is Ride of a Lifetime. It's uh, Bob Iger's book um, on Disney. And I loved it because he's an unbelievably empathetic leader and he had a high-performing lead. And I think... Somebody asked me the other day, I said, sometimes when you get put on the spot, they said, how can you be an empathetic leader and a high performance, demand high performance at the same time? I don't believe you can, the two are not um, mutually exclusive. I really believe they're completely interrelated. Like at Comtech, we were able to do so many amazing things for our staff because we were a high performing company. We demanded a huge amount, expected a huge amount, but we gave back and we were only able, able to give back because we are unbelievably successful as a company. Awesome. What's one of your favourite podcasts and why? Can't say our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I really like Masters of Scale. Yeah. Why is that? I love, I think Reid Hoffman's got a great, uh, great speaking voice. I think he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's obviously you know, got a lot of access to some of the best, you know, from the best people in the industry. And yeah, he does a great job. Yeah. We, we get that answer a lot. It's a great podcast. And who's someone that you'd love to have dinner with but who you've never met? 
uh, probably a new one would be Mikhail Arteta. I'm, I'm, he's, he's the manager of Arsenal. Then there's a great yeah. show on Netflix, uh, All or Nothing. And I'm, I'm absolutely inspired by leadership and management. And uh, did, you, did you watch Ted Lasso? No. no. Ted yeah. Lasso is awesome. Ted Lasso, but, I, but I really believe All or Nothing with Arsenal is, is, is the real-life um, Ted Lasso. And uh, he had to make some really tough decisions, getting rid of his best, the captain, you know, top, uh, you know, top uh, striker, top scorer, goal scorer in the team. And uh, yeah, if you look at who's winning the English Premier League today, Arsenal. So yeah, I, uh, if I had an opportunity today to meet him, I'd love to sit next to him on a plane. Awesome. I'm also an Arsenal fan. So I, I, you know, I wasn't an Arsenal fan. I'm embarrassed to say I'm a. I'm a I was a West Ham supporter <laughs> until I watched All Sorry or Nothing. About that. <laughs> I, yeah, I, you should have told me that long ago. <laughs> um, there, there's a reason for that, by the way. In 1966, let me test you guys. What happened in 1966? Not a clue. <laughs> England won the, the World Cup. Okay. Okay. And there was a guy, Jeff Hurst, who scored a hat trick. Unfortunately, he played for West Ham. Ah. I was six years old, supported West Ham. I think that was the last, the last good thing to come out of West Ham. <laughs> Unlucky timing. So, so, so <laughs> since, since, since I watched All or Nothing, I, I decided, no, finally, I did say I'm loyal, but like, I just feel there's been too much pain <laughs> for too long. It's been, yeah. Um, Dave, what's one of the most memorable investments you made at OIF? I, uh, well, I'd have to say Instacluster, because of you know, the return's been unbelievable, but I think we saw what no one else did. You know, we at that stage we were only writing uh, two million dollar uh, checks, and Instacluster were needed seven million dollars. We literally walked the streets uh, you know, to every single VC uh, to try and uh, uh, help raise the additional five million dollars. Everybody turned us down except Bailador. And uh, we were lucky enough nine months later to be able to put in another five hundred thousand dollars at the same valuation, and then a little later on another million dollars. And as I said earlier on, it returned uh, seventy. So as I say, I think it was one that no one else saw. We've loved working with the founders; they've been you know, exceptional guys, and uh, who actually have both invested in our fund three, and uh, and uh, yeah, just. Uh, Fun point of view, that so far has been our best investment. Lovely. And last question, if you could send a text message to everyone in the world, what would that text message say? Listen to John Lennon's words, imagine. And the, you know, I think there's so much crap in this world you know, for, for you know, we just see it happening right now in Ukraine and Russia. You know, imagine there's no borders. Imagine there's, I always tell my wife that's what she can play at my funeral. <laughs> that's beautiful. beautiful. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Dave. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Dave. That was incredible. <laughs>